netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this week's FX Podcast. John Montgomery with you, and for a limited time, down in Sydney with Mike, sitting across from me here in the room. How's it going, my friend? Good, good, good. Yeah, no, it's uh, normally, of course, we'd have uh, Jeff or I, I certainly, you and I would not normally do together yep. an FX podcast intro, but this week's a bit different. Yeah, I come down here every January and do some work for FX PhD and FX Guide, but shortly we're going to be heading to the States and covering the SciTech Oscars, and we're continuing our coverage actually in this FX podcast uh, with one of them, and that's the Lowry Process. And uh, Mike, uh, I saw some sad news actually when we learned of the passing of John Lowry in January, um, but luckily uh, we were able to actually... Uh, have this coverage as part of it, and he actually knew about the nomination before his passing. Yeah, yeah. It's um, obviously there are some people in the industry who uh, have contributed a lot, um, but it's particularly uh, interesting timing, I guess. I don't know what the right word there is to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he's been uh, he and the team from Lowry Digital, which is actually no longer Lowry Digital. It's um, uh, Reliant, as you'll hear in the uh, podcast in a minute. Uh, were nominated for a SciTech Award for the uh, work that was done. Uh, with, as I say, the Reliance MediaWorks uh, stuff for uh, restoration and stuff. So Reliance MediaWorks uh, now the owner of what was Lowry Digital, mm-hmm. and that's the um, the company that most of us would know. But, of course, uh, I guess, you know, it's it's good in the passing on any uh, any time of a passing of somebody that's a bit of an industry legend just to take a moment to kind of acknowledge their contribution to the industry. Yeah, it really is amazing. I think... My first knowledge of their processes was actually restoring uh, some of the Apollo mission uh, footage, uh, which is really incredibly amazing. And the process they used back, I think, what, in the 70s, right? I think is when that was done. Yeah, there's actually, well, there's two instances of it, actually. There's the original um, one that you're talking about, absolutely, which was uh, uh, definitely the one that, um, 16 and 17, I'm going to say, those missions. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there was a a second uh, run at it. And we actually discussed that uh, in the interview I have with Kimball Thurston, who's uh, basically Lowry Digital's chief technology scientist um, at the Reliance Technology Centre in Burbank. Um, But Kimball basically gets into that uh, that process. But, you know, i got to say, I I went into this interview, John, thinking that the Lowry process was primarily primarily um, a restoration process, though I was aware of it in other areas. I had to kind of no idea on how far the process extended into non-restoration work. Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, the technology, obviously, tons of research, obviously, needs to be done over the years, and they've transferred now to GPU technology from a technological underpinnings. It's actually being used now to do uh, actually improvement on digitally acquired images and so forth in feature films, and it's really quite amazing. Uh, some of it used, uh, you know, on, on Fincher's film, uh, actually Zodiac as well. And so utilizing some of the, you know, motion estimation technology and other technology to actually improve the quality of image that's acquired from the digital process as well. Not just making old deteriorated films look great. New ones look even better, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, that was the film for me that I really, um, I think I said this in the podcast, that I'd really... Uh, got me to sit up and take notice because it was with the Viper. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, this Viper footage looks so darn good. Um, I mean, it really was. I was kind of stunned at how good it looked. And uh, that's when we started hearing more about how the Larry Digital process was being used. And, you know, Avatar, Benjamin Button, like tons of films, especially 3D ones, um, have now been uh, part of that. So clearly, in addition to the restoration work, which is, you know, really significant, and some of the most famous films of sort of, you would have ever heard of um, have uh, 
have gone through that process. Um, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Kane, uh, Singing in the Rain, Roman Holiday, like all of those films have been through the uh, image mm-hmm. process, clean up stuff from those guys. But then, as you say, it's the new stuff um, that is also really, really interesting. Um, but, you know, uh, he had obviously, what, as we like to say in Australia, had a good innings. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we are obviously sad that he's gone, but um, it's great that he at least knew about the, uh, the work that happened and how it was acknowledged by the Academy before he uh, passed away. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, why don't we go ahead now and uh, cross that interview and find out more about it, really uh, diving into some interesting topics. So let's go ahead and cross to that now. So, Kim, let me start by saying thank you so much for joining us. We do really appreciate it. No worries. Um, So congratulations on uh, being recognized by the Academy for the work that you guys have been doing. It's, uh, It's not exactly a new process in the sense that you guys have built a long reputation, well earned, uh, but it's nice to be acknowledged, I hope. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. I I presume you saw the press release today from the... Absolutely. So generally, when I think of the work that uh, you guys do, uh, obviously now as Reliance Media Works, but formerly as Larry Digital, I just think of restoration. Is it purely a restoration application that you're being acknowledged for with the uh, work with the Academy, or does it extend further than that? Absolutely not. And that's sort of been the, 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 the thing that... Um, has always been true about Lara Digital, and it wasn't necessarily messaged very well uh, at the time, but um, that's what we're, we're trying to change a little bit right now, uh, is that the, the the whole mantra of Lara Digital and then a short bit of time with DTS and now with Reliance Media Works was really about making your images better. Uh, that was sort of always the, the buzzword, I guess, or, or tagline, or, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, so... The it's about making your images better, and and we started off with restoration because John had started with uh, a contract from Kodak to help build up the sort of fil- a film restoration uh, model for producing, taking movies and making them available on DVD, uh, and so that's sort of where it started. And then we get we you know there was a lot of work with restoration for a long time, but for a long time, um, you know, even since the early 2000s anyway. Um, we've actually been applying the process to uh, what we always called the, the 911 projects, uh, <laughs> the, the the emergency. Oh my God! I ran the film uh, upside down through the developer, and so it's all scratched. Uh, can you guys fix it? Sure, we can fix that. To um, oh yeah, I forgot and ran the ran the film through the X-ray machine and it fogged it. Can you fix that? Yes, we can fix that. So for a long time, we've been when we've been sort of fixing problems with new productions. Uh, and more recently, we've, we've actually been expanding that into trying to get involved in the middle of the new production pipeline and trying to prove a, uh, a sort of a, I don't, I don't want to say new workflow, but an, uh, uh, an addition to the workflow which uh, helps make things more efficient. Um, so we, for 3D projects, it's, it's a bigger win than the 2D projects. But for example, on uh, uh, on Benjamin Button, which was you know a couple of years ago now, uh, we uh, enabled David Fincher to, to be able to take and 
film with whatever camera he wanted and know that we were going to be able to remove the noise. And we did the same thing for Zodiac. And, and I was going to mention Zodiac, uh, actually, because Zodiac, obviously, not, not a mega film in the, quite the way that uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button was. But I've got to tell you, for right. me personally, that was a real turning point for me in my appreciation of your work because up until then, I was one of those people that sort of thought of the great restoration work you had done. And I couldn't right. believe how good Zodiac looked. In fact, I remember sitting in a press screening on a obviously pristine kind of setup, well calibrated, uh-huh. and I was stunned. I'd never seen Viper footage looking this good. And the week before, I'd been shooting with Viper. And so, of course, I was like, right. okay, so this, <laughs> there's something going on here that I don't get because this just it, looks it look, magnificent. It looks like 35, didn't it? <laughs> it just looks spectacular. And, of course, your name yeah. immediately came up when I tried to sort of work out why that was. And so I guess for the next whatever that is, uh, five years or so, I've been acutely aware that your work has extended beyond what is, let's face it, still great restoration work, but it's, it's this process. Right. Am I right in thinking basically between camera lens and projection mm-hmm. lens, that's where you're just trying to improve quality? I mean, that's your kind of mantra, right? Right, right, exactly. So, exactly. so I've got you. And, and, to also, and to also enable people to use, you know, so what we were doing with that was, you know, that, well, everyone the film with the, the Viper, but he also shot some stuff with uh, film and, and some, you know, low-light stuff and some, you know, what, whatever whatever it was. He could, he could shoot with whichever camera he wanted to. And uh, we could sort of normalize that. Uh, so if, you know, if you talk today, you know, now you can film with the Airy, film with the Red, and you can film with 60 millimeter, you can film with, you know, 55 millimeter if you want, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up at this point. And we can take and make it all look consistent, make it all look like a particular type of camera was used effectively. Okay, now... now uh, and got, that was sort of a, But you've got to help me here because, <laughs> and I say this from a point of admiration, anyone that uh, I talk to in this industry is going to say that they would go to lengths to kind of normalize stuff and they would use a common color space and they would make sure that everything was calibrated. But you guys are going way beyond that. I mean, because yeah, there's much more to it in terms of actually understanding what's happening at each of the color channels or um, even the film layers. You guys have just right. amazing understanding of... So so how did Zoic, Zodiac, for a start, look so good to answer my five-year-old question? And, and what is the kind of process that you're, you're deploying? Because it involves quite a lot of compute power. Oh yeah, yeah, and and so the the real thing is, you know, what we're talking about, you know, color. Well, er, everyone's been, you know, for the last number of years has been doing, you know, the onset grading and and all of these things. So color is a relatively well understood thing in terms of matching, and that's, you know, we can do that and we do do that, but um, that's not the sort of unique thing. The thing that we're talking about is the, the texture of the film, the, the 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 noise signature, if you will, and the noise levels. And, you know, for a long time, we were always arguing for, well, remove the noise. And uh, that actually doesn't work that well, um, because A, people expect it, and B, um, well, it works great for compression to actually lower the noise level, because you can then spend more of your compression bits on, uh, on, on detail in the image. Uh, actually, removing noise sometimes sort of hurts the presentation. It doesn't feel natural. And also, just uh, from and a so, technical point of view, if I reduce uh-huh. if I reduce noise and grain, don't I have a perceived decrease in sharpness? Uh, no, that's well. I, I say that that's a myth. Oh, really? Uh, most 
most of the, well, it's a pseudo-myth. Um, there is a psychosomatic sort of uh, thing that happens with, with noise that helps sharpen up your edges a little bit, uh, with film grain especially, um, that your eyes basically build in that detail. What's, what's, what I say is a myth is that most of the noise reduction algorithms that are out there, most of them that um, are sort of commercially available or, or any of that, either have um, inferior tracking technology or rely on uh, basically blurring the image, if you will. And that's what's actually removing the, 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 the detail. Now, when we're talking about this, as I understand it, and again, I'm not trying to pick on anything that's proprietary, but one of the, th- the tiny things that I think that I've got right about your process is you really understand not just noise or grain from the sort of base way we perceive it, but you're much more in terms of what's happening on each of the channels and how I might be able to derive information from one to help with another. And, and therefore, you're, sure. is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, we certainly do do use that, um, and I mean, it, it of course depends. Um, and I mean, you know, one of the things we've done for years for repairing, you know, it used to be for repairing faded film, was was line up and effectively copy detail from one channel to the other. Um, that's you know, we don't do that so much except for um, extreme repair scenarios. Uh, in the uh, in the modern films, uh, but yes, certainly we certainly do, and and we certainly do that for uh, some of the 3D work we've been doing recently, um, where you know, pictures worth a thousand words, but there was a, a, a bit in Avatar. I don't even know if it. I think it made it to the final cut, but Michelle Rodriguez was soft and out of focus in one eye only, right? And we were able to take take information from the other eye. And rather than, you know, what, what most people are doing now is just converting them. They'll obviously take that shot into, into conversion and take one eye and convert, convert the other one. But what we're doing is uh, using the original footage but, but copying the detail across and fixing, basically removing the focus uh, difference by adding detail to the other eye. Instead of, instead of what, uh, I forget, the, I, I was talking to someone um, about this, this was this summer, and like, oh, well, what we do? We just blur the one eye to match it. I'm like, no, we'll add detail <laughs> the other one. And he was sort of uh, dumbfounded how you could do that. Yeah, and am I right in thinking also that this stuff extends to doing work that uh, I guess you'd call it restoration that is uh, upraising stuff from SD to HD um, and sort of right. Yeah, so there's there's a good component of that that is related to stuff that maybe is uh, episodic television work that is obviously important and and valuable and yeah. I don't know if it's been released yet, but we're certainly doing that for um, for things like you know, the the Simpsons. I guess is one one project that we're working on. Uh, did you so do taking... stuff on the West Wing? Because I remember West Wing started out as yeah. a four by three SD and ended up as a nineteen by. Because I was a, an avid watcher of that show, and I think you worked on that, didn't you? Um, there, well, we did some repair work for them. I I don't know if we upraised okay stuff or not. I, that's in the annals of history, and I'm not always the best at remembering <laughs> what projects are which. I, I I know the the one sample of getting film that was completely scratched on the uh, on the emulsion layer was from Westing. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because some of these television shows, like The Simpsons, for example, uh, are incredibly valuable properties. I mean, just unbelievably right. valuable, though we tend to focus a lot on work that you may have done for restoring historically important films. Um, probably mm-hmm. from a financial point of view, though, you know, something like The Simpsons would, uh, you know, is a bigger kind of asset to a studio than a 19, I mean, even though it might be historically significant, uh, an older feature film. Right. Right, and then, you know, of course, we've done all the, the Disney Platinum. Yeah. And, well. and these are um, very valuable properties, uh, but also, uh-huh. in some cases, the stuff that you're dealing with is, uh, when you're doing the restoration work, is inherently degraded. So there must be a tremendous sense of, well, it's all very well for everybody else, but you actually have to take the degraded thing and make it better. And, of course, a bit like a doctor, right. you want to do no harm. It, right. Uh, is there a process of trying to work out how the heck you even get at some of these things to, especially the the really older stuff that you've done to, um, because there's there's a lot of physical issues here in terms of scanning and stuff to make sure that you can get this happening, or is it now pretty much solved that you can tackle anything? Um, well, there's there's only a couple things that I I think that we uh, we can't handle uh, at this point. And some of that is, is, is actually the sort of experimental things that we can't handle. I think most, we've seen most of the major problems that you've kind of run into. Um, you know, some of them end up being more manual fixes than, than others, but, um, most of them, uh, we can, I think we can handle at this point, uh, in terms of restoration work anyway. You know, some of the new, as some of the new, you know, as some of the new cameras come online, like for example, you know, I, um, this one, I don't, well, I don't know how much red wants it to be known, but the red one had huge problems with thermal stability, uh, where they weren't controlled. Uh, they since fixed this, so they probably don't care anymore. Um, but in the early days, it, it wasn't thermally controlled. And so you had, you see, as the ca- camera heated up, you'd get this weird, like, blooming thing uh, happening, these weird streaking things happening, it, and it was it was not necessarily it was only visible like once you started putting a color grade on it and started you know cranking up or or doing something like that, and so that was something where we, you know, we had to figure out how to make something up. So there's there's new problems always appearing, but um, I think restoration we can pretty much uh, handle anything. If you look at Rashomon or any of these other. Um, well, you mentioned the red one there doing that, but even on a Canon 5D, if you run that sensor for, you know, 10, 12 minutes, the noise floor is going to change between the end of the 12 minutes and the beginning because of the, you know, the need for a thermal stable characteristic changing, right. especially when you design yeah, a sensor to be used one, for stills. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's one thing that, that our process is um, sort of unique at that no one... No one I know um, does this. I mean, not that it's, you know, uh, it's just more compute intensive than than uh, than anything sort of proprietary is that we're sort of fully dynamic in our noise floor calculations. So we, um, you know, as, as the sequence progresses through time, we're constantly reevaluating what the noise levels are. And I think that's really important for people to understand because we talked a little bit about 
getting consistency between, say, uh, a shoot that might be involving a red or an ARI and something else. But there's also an inherent assumption that I think most people have is that like you get a couple of Canon 5Ds and you set them to the same color space and start shooting, that they're going to be the same with the same settings. But a lot of these cameras, especially these ones at the lower end, are designed to get a good shot, but not necessarily to provide consistency between cameras because that wasn't what they were engineered for. It's not like it's important that if I take a still shot, I have exactly the identical settings if I use a different 5D Mark II because as long as the picture looks good, that was what we were after. So some of the work Mm -hmm. you do presumably is to balance stuff up even when theoretically on paper – two cameras should have been shooting with the same ISO, the same everything. They should look identical, but of course they don't necessarily conform to a camera-to-camera unity. Is that right? Right, and that's and that's exactly, that's sort of exactly the point about this sort of dynamic recalculation at every frame that we do. And that's part of why we're being recognized is just the massive amount of computation we do as quickly as we do it um, is that the... Uh, you can't just use a preset. Like you can't sort of take uh, a particular camera. I mean, especially if you talk about restoration, but because you have no idea what the camera was yeah. most of the time. But um, you know, if you if you just sort of take a preset, you know, like I don't know, if you apply to, no, I don't know, Photoshop has these tools or not. But you know, if you think of applying some setting in in After Effects or Photoshop or whatever for like pick a camera type, well, that's fine. Except for they are they do vary between models, especially in the in the professional film world. Um, you know, a lot of these things people are making their own custom, you know, filter pack to go in front of the lens and it changes the signature and warps things and and so you have to um, you have to sort of be able to adapt to that. Uh, and that's sort of why we we don't have um, particular setting. You know, we don't plug in um, on a Canon 5D. Yeah. We, we try to figure out what's going on at every frame. So I remember being at an NAB and bumping into an old uh, or a friend who was a supervisor who'd got involved with some stuff. I don't know if he was a client or was working with you, but the point was he went, oh, yeah, and they've got like 600 Macs. And I went, I'm sorry, I thought you said they had 600 Macs. Now, this is a couple of years, or a few years ago, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and it yeah. came out that you guys were just uh, an incredible computational kind of farm when everybody was thinking that, you know, it was just the renderers that were doing the farm. So what what sort of computers do you have today? Can you give us like an update on, on what you're using? Uh, and... Sure, yeah. We've we've long since abandoned the Macs, um, which, you know, much to the chagrin of, of Apple, they didn't move quickly enough. Um, and nowadays we are uh, doing all of our image processing uh, using the GPU. So NVIDIA is our best friend. Right. Um, and we're using a technology called CUDA, which you may have heard of. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think with the exception of one or two, uh, all of our algorithms run uh, in GPU space. Uh, and so our farm is actually sort of interesting. It's gotten smaller huh. uh, because the GPUs represent a much larger uh Compute capabilities over a CPU, right? If you think of, since since we're talking about image processing, those are sort of inherently either per pixel or you know local area type operation, or at least you you write your algorithms so that they are. I have to preface that, but um, you end up uh, being very parallelizable, 
And so if you talk about, uh, you know, one of the, the, I don't know, what's the, the current best gamer card that's out there, like NVIDIA 580 or something, right? Right. That's got 512 processors on it. Right, with, with you know, a decent amount of memory on card and memory that's faster than your normal computer memory. Right, so you compare that to, uh, you know, your, your best Intel, which has only got eight processors, and yes, you can do SSE, right, so, but that's, you know, if you're talking about floating point, that's only four, so at most you can kind of, you can think of the Intel as having sort of like 32 processors. Right. At most, right, if you're doing everything with SSE and, and you have eight cores, you, you know, so you, you, the, the economies of scale kick in, and, you know, we can do... 10, 20 times the amount of computation uh, on the GPU. Yeah, uh, there are a few algorithms that, that lend themselves well to parallelization, and presumably, even though you're working stuff out on a per-frame basis, this just is inherently a good image processing algorithm for parallelization that takes advantage of GPU kind of framework architecture. Right, right. And that's, and that's what we've spent most of the last, I don't know, six years now uh, working on is we're writing a lot of our algorithms to be parallelized. And uh, so how big is the farm now? Uh, what do we have? We only have 250 machines or 300 machines now. Um, and so yet... It's, 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 it's gotten smaller. But yet we're, we're probably doing... I'm trying to think of... I think one of the numbers I, I sort of figured out is on an average frame for something like what we did on um, Benjamin Button or, or, or Avatar or any of these, we're doing somewhere, let's see, um, if, you, if you were to, to translate it into nuke-speak uh, in terms of a compositing, because uh, a lot of the stuff that we're doing, you know, you could do, well, you could partially do on a, you know, on a compositing station. Right. Uh, but but your your node graph would be something like 100,000 or 200,000 nodes. That's a pretty good uh, node graph. Even, <laughs> yeah, probably even larger than that. Uh, and that's per frame. Right. Uh, In fact, you, you use so, the NVIDIA um, CUDA technology on the Apollo 11 stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Could you yeah. briefly uh, talk about that? I think that was a couple of years ago, right? Like 2009 that started? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, that was. Um, yeah. It was, and it was sort of in the early days of CUDA, so Nvidia was amazed that we had the stuff even working. Um, <laughs> but, but that, uh, that project was particularly interesting, I guess, to a lot of people because it it's so historically significant. It's it's hard to imagine. And by the same token, it's it seemed uh, from what we were hearing at the time anyway that it, the stuff was in pretty appalling state. Is that right? Oh yeah, it, it was atrocious. Absolutely atrocious, and, and you know, un- unfortunately, you know, it, it's still it's only less atrocious now. Um, it, it was one of those one of those projects where uh, I'd be happy to work on forever, um, trying to improve things and make things a little bit better, and uh, and and do all that. In fact, I've I've had some because I did all the I did all the work on that one uh, right. myself. Actually, there was one where it was basically it was clear that we couldn't. We couldn't bring it through the normal uh, production pipeline, and so I ended up doing a lot of custom engineering for that. But we are literally talking about you guys working on Buzz Aldrin and sort of stepping on 
the lunar surface, we're talking, you know, I mean, the the absolute quintessential, you talk about not being able to repeat a shot. Like this is like, um, this is Neil Armstrong. This is as as uh, probably important footage as, you know, some of the most important footage mankind's ever taken. And also we're not really in a good position to film it again, even if we wanted to, um, no matter uh, how hard anyone wanted. Uh, how long did that process run for? When did it finish? I know it started a couple of years ago. Um, well, the, the, the length of the project was only about six months okay. or so. Uh, and we were, we've were we been hoping to get more of the other uh, Apollo missions. Right. Um, but uh, NASA's, as everybody, is having budget issues. And so those they have better copies of uh, wasn't quite so critical. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, no, it only, the project only ran for about six months or so. Uh, and like I said, I've sort of since then had some other ideas that at some point hope can can work on. But Well, I certainly hope you get to deal with some of the latter footage because obviously uh, that is interesting from a historical point of view from the incredible uh, span of technology that happened between the, you know, the first missions and the last missions just going from even black and white to color, but resolution, just a ton right. of things changed. And uh, mm-hmm. we've seen what you can do on Apollo 11. I'd love to see what you did on the, the ladder footage with the lunar land uh, module um, rover and stuff like that. Uh, was it called the rover? Yeah. The, right. Yeah. The, the last well, mission. I mean, yeah. Neil, you know, I mean, the, the pictures of Buzz are actually pretty decent. Um, we can we can improve those. But the, when that first step down, that there was... <laughs> There's actually a snafu with the uh, the settings of the camera. Oh, really? Uh, that were were further degrading the footage, so that it, the information's there's some of it. It's just it's not not really there. And and one of the things that um, that I wanted to make 100% sure that we were doing was that there was no there was absolutely no manual touch up of anything because of course conspiracy theorists will jump all over that. Yeah. Right. That we painted out the, uh, you know, we painted out the wires. No, we didn't paint out any wires. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ridiculous. Um, I think the other thing about that is that, uh, you know, there is obviously a lot of um, technical stuff at, at at work there. There's also this uh, this slightly creative thing about, you know, how contrasting stuff. I mean, how much do you fix that picture to change it? I mean, a good example of that, and I know this was probably outside what you were working on, but some of the footage was shot on film, was shot at low frame rates because deliberately they were trying to say film. And, you know, then there's of course the question well, of, do the, you... the, most of the motion, well, all of the motion footage from the, uh, from the Apollo stuff was actually, it was only shot at 10 frames a second and it was shot on a video camera. It was actually a tube based camera, um, that, uh, used less power than most, uh, watches do today. It was only nine watts of power or something like that. Um, but, uh, it was only 240 lines of vertical resolution. Wow. So there's really, you know, it was very small and there was no, you know, the only film they had were, were still cameras, were the Hasselblad. And those are the high res pictures that, you know, that people reprint from. Yeah. Uh, all the time. But, um, but yeah, there, there was no moving film camera at all. I really, I thought there was some on, uh, on, uh, shooting descent stuff, but perhaps I was mistaken with that. Oh, uh, yeah, I think there, there may have been a, a little 8mm uh, or Super 8. Because uh, I remember, I think it was John Knoll did some work on that because uh, people had seen the descent stuff, and it might have been a, a later mission, 
played back at 24 or 25 frames a second kind of thing, even though it was shot at, at as you say, 10 or something. So everyone had a perception right. that it ran a lot different in time than it actually did in real life because no one had thought right. to, obviously back then, try and motion uh, compensate. Yeah. So you, you had yeah. this sort of generation that thought these events were happening at different speeds and they actually happened at, which I thought was a really interesting uh, side effect. But I, I digress quite a lot from, uh, from your uh, technical uh, Oscar consideration. So tell me just for the record, like who is, um, who is uh, the award uh, made out to and who's like actually the recipients of the award for? Uh... The, well, there's, um, you know, there's a larger team here, although most of them came later, but um, the, uh, there's, there's five of us. There's John Lowry, the starter, and then Ian Kavine, who was the sort of first developer of the, the working with John. Uh, and then Ian Gooden, who was the second one. Then there was myself, who was the third one. And then Tim Connolly, who was not surprisingly enough the fourth developer that joined us. And it was the so those five people. You know, John Moore um, idea. He's he's not a programmer, uh, but had a lot of the early ideas and uh, uh, the the inspiration for doing a lot of the weird things. Um, uh, of one of the crazy ideas, if you will, uh, <laughs> which is invaluable. Right, so so he was sort of responsible for a lot of the uh, the, the algorithm of how we do the magic that we do. Uh, and then Ian Kavine uh, helped come up with a lot of the early the proof of concept, if you will, the, the early motion tracking and the early uh, enhancement stuff that. You know, largely the enhancements still the same as it was 10 years ago. Motion tracking fundamentally changed. But he came up with a lot of that stuff. And well, then uh, the, three of, the last three of us, you know, we've been mostly about the, uh, uh, and I've written a bunch of new optical flow algorithms, but it's been a lot about the, the parallelization and making it so that we can conceivably do process a movie in, in a reasonable amount of time. Is the optical flow stuff to do uh, stereo as in left to right eye tracking, or is it optical flow as in terms of uh, better managing temporal artifacts? Uh, I'm sorry, repeat the question? Uh, the, you mentioned you've been doing lately optical flow algorithms, and I was wondering if that was to do left to right eye um, translation of uh, sort of data, or was it more to solve temporal problems with corrections? Um, both at the same time, actually. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we use optical flow for just about everything that we do. I mean, it's not, not everything, but um, the, the vast majority of things involve uh, looking at things temporally uh, to, to discover disparities or discover similarities uh, or to find out, you know, that, that's... That's really why I say that you know noise reduction. Uh, if you can go f- enough frames out and and integrate enough frames of noise, then your detail is not not lost. Right? If you only do three frames or five frames surrounding, then yeah, it's going to be softer right. if you remove noise because you're not actually you're not taking it. Because right? if you think about film grain, right? The, the little crystals are randomly placed on the frame, right? So they're randomly capturing those edges. Uh, so you have to get enough of those 
samplings to have a good strong edge. Right. And so that's part of the thing, you know, part of the, you talked about Apollo, we were going, I was trying to, I was going, because it was so, was so still, uh, I could actually go farther, but I was doing 75 or, you know, just a, several minutes worth of footage. Yes. Collapsed into one, into one single frame. Because a bunch of those shots right. were pretty much locked off, weren't they? Yeah, though that, you know, some of the stuff, <laughs> there's actually, there was one which I, I thought it was kind of fun to do. Um, and it was, I use it in my little, I have a little PowerPoint of, um, why temporal integration is good. Uh, but there's one bit where they're actually inside the lander. So there's no motion at all. There's no wind. There's no, right. Definitely uh, no like, wind, yeah. And so I just took all of those frames yep. and I didn't do anything to them other than add them all up and divide by however many frames I had. Just a compound function. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the images you get out of it is absolutely stunning from this little tiny video camera that has 240 lines of, in, of, of resolution. Because there's, minor, you know, minor fluctuations in electronics or, or in the tube camera itself. Um, you know, it's, it's less so with, with modern, you know, with the RED or the ARRI, uh, Alexa or whatever. You know, it's less so you, you're more locked into that pixel readout. The sort of digital world, but in, in, when you talk about the analog world, you can um, you can really uncover a lot of detail if you can go far enough in time. Yeah, that compounding effect uh, obviously just annihilates noise because uh, you know if it's a hundred frames, it's one hundredth uh, that it's there for. But also, yeah, it, it does. I've done that myself on some stuff, and it is it is quite unbelievably remarkable how much uh, it can basically solidify what were seemingly uh, lost details. Uh, I'd love to see that. Um, So, look, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. really appreciate it. All right. Oh, hey, Mike. That was actually a really interesting interview. And uh, there's actually a whole group of them that it was actually won the Science and Engineering Award, actually uh, effectively the plaque uh, award is what it is. Yeah, so in this particular case, there are five. um, So obviously we're talking to Kimball and we've spoken about John himself. Uh, but uh, Ian Caven, uh, I think that's how you pronounce Ian's name. I apologise if I got that wrong. Uh, uh, another Ian, Ian uh, Godden, and also Tim Connolly uh, were also in. And the actual award was for the development of unique and efficient system for the reduction of noise and other artefacts, thereby providing high-quality images required for the filmmaking process. And it used advanced GPU, motion estimation, uh, to enhance image quality. And look, I, we've had this discussion uh, with a couple of the other ones. This is not... It's very different, obviously, the SciTech Awards to the normal Oscars. For mm-hmm. a start, it doesn't have to be like uniquely done for the first time this year. It's more like body of work that then is acknowledged this year. There's no sense of it being having to be sort of like, oh, I invented it just now. Uh, obviously, a lot of things are recently invented and therefore more sort of uh, uh, like a traditional kind of thing that you would think of. But yeah, like, you know, as we saw in some of the other awards, it tends to be uh, that they get into the industry, get appreciated for what they are, and their contribution over time is what then earns them the recognition from the Academy. So it's kind of funny because when I was talking to the guys on another one um, on the micro-voxel stuff in Mantra, they were almost like, well, we didn't just write it. We wrote it a while ago, but great that they're giving it to us now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's adoption and use as, as uh, performance and, and tested and used over time as well. And well, it's not just the SciTech Awards, Mike, but uh, also going to be covering the uh, in the awards season the VES Awards as well from Los Angeles. 
Absolutely, yeah. And we have some really good interviews lined up um, at the VES Awards. Uh, we're going to be sitting down and talking to several of the key um, uh, people that are up for awards in the range of categories because the VES Awards has a lot more categories than we would traditionally cover with the Oscars because it moves into episodic television. But also it draws that line between uh, a primarily effects-driven film and a supporting film uh, set of uh, effects. And I think the thing here interesting for me, John, is that Hugo, which is up for an Oscar for Best Visual Effects, was only nominated in the VES Awards in the supporting category. So there's obviously two different views on on that. It'd kind of be a bummer, I think, if you're one of them was nominated in the VES main category and you were bumped out for the mm-hmm. Oscars, you'd be like, damn, so close. Yeah, exactly. And, and But again, a really wide, also variety range of, of awards within the VES broken down into various categories where obviously visual effects is in prominence versus uh, a much broader area. Uh, filmmaking as well. But can I pimp out, promo out or whatever, um, an absolutely killer FX podcast we have coming up. So John, you and I both really enjoyed the the 200th episode we did from London. We enjoyed it so much, we thought, why not do that kind of thing again? Um, Again, we need a special occasion to do that. Yeah, exactly. And basically what Mike's uh, alluding to is our effectively Oscar uh, roundup, I guess you could say, of the visual effects nominees. I mean, I, I would argue too with you. This is these are like the rock stars of, of visual effects as well. I mean, that you was very much about workflow, right? <laughs> that was very much about workflow. London. This one, I think, is going to be absolutely killer. Talking about who's going to be taking part in this podcast, we've got them all lined up. Yeah. So cross fingers, but we expect to be. Um, we've got booked uh, Rob Legato <laughs> with Hugo. We have already recorded Tim Burke uh, for Harry Potter, which was a really I'm you guys are going to love that discussion. Um, Eric Nash from DD is going to be talking to us again about uh, Real Steel. Uh, I'm trying to organise tomorrow to talk to Scott Farr about uh, uh, TF3, and then uh, we're going to be sitting down with Joe Terry over Return of the Planet of the Apes, which is actually Return of the Planet of the Apes, Rise of Planet Rise. of the Apes. I'm sorry, um, and we'll be doing that in the week of VES. We have uh, like a lot of a lot of content on these films already, I guess, John, but this is a chance to get um, a member of each of the nominated teams, because they are teams, to speak to the films and also to comment on the other films um, and give their observations on what those five films kind of represent in terms of technology uh, approaches and what they, as you say, is kind of like Rockstar VFX supervisors, uh, think are some interesting trends and stuff. So got to say looking forward to that one well and it's actually i've got to say from my perspective as well it's been fun to be down here during this award season because there's an amazing amount of content that's going on you know mike's you look through the window and mike's talking to someone again or doing a podcast and we've got a lot of great content coming up in the next couple of weeks uh uh before the before the award season or for the award season so it's it's been fun down here to, to work on that but uh I guess uh, one thing I also want to point out, too, is make a mention of here is that uh, over at our sister site, FXPHD, we've been adding more content as well. We just started our new term and still early early in the term and a great time to join. But what we're trying to do is actually have a bit more uh, original content, I guess you could say, that's available for everyone on the homepage. And on the right side of the homepage, we'll be doing things like studio profiles, profiles on our profs, maybe the occasional um, article uh, to get you to think about things such as digital color and digital uh, camera acquisition, Mike, that you did last week. So uh, you might want to start checking over at Effects Guide because we're going to have a lot, quite a bit of content there, uh, more so than we've done in the past, in addition just to the solid uh, training that we have there. Yeah, absolutely, John. I mean, obviously that content on FXPHD is going to be um, focused on stuff, as you said, like the professor profs, but also other tech stuff that's more timely. 
Um, maybe even you might even consider tips type stuff, which has always been, uh, or at least in recent years, it's been over on PhD. And don't worry, there's other stuff we're covering in addition to the feature films. Like, for example, we've got a terrific thing uh, on the short film category with the Pixar guys that we've recorded, which is just, you're going to love. It's coming up on FX Guide TV, back over on the FX Guide site. So when it's a news thing like that, like the Oscars and stuff, you'll find that on FX Guide. When it's more of a tip, technique thing, or a, a behind-the-scenes profile on a studio or on a prof, that'll be over on FX PhD. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Looking forward to heading out to L.A. in a week and hanging out with uh, Jeff, the other third part of the FX Guide crew. But uh, everyone, again, uh, thanks for taking the time to listen. Bye. Okay, see you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.